Welcome to the Unchanging Education Podcast with Dan Clemens. This is Season 2, Episode 8, Hige and Hutchins. So we're wrapping up Leg 1 of the TVSC matter from Locke, as well as Rousseau, to now uh, G. Hige and R.M. Hutchins, circa 1950. So this is sort of the philosophical backdrop and early contributions to the question at hand. And this episode contains what I describe as a vision of teacher-centered perennialism and the great conversation, and perhaps even the attendant need for a great conservation. Before I dive in, I want to make one or two topical notes. In a recent episode of um, another excellent podcast, um, Victor Davis Hanson noted that it would be a step in the right direction for teacher education and for education in general if someone with a master's degree or graduate degree was able to enter directly into public education instead of someone needing or necessitating a bachelor of education which is spending a year or two in an education school and this emphasizes content, mastery, uh, knowing of what one speaks. And what's suggested in that discussion is, which I think is perhaps the single best idea in terms of how to start making real progress and improving the, the general state of education and teaching and learning. But what's discussed there is that the reason that this does not occur is that there is this emphasis, if not an obsession, on method, or you could also think of method in terms of technique, of how someone teaches. Another word, instead of method or technique, you can also think of style. There's emphasis on teaching styles and also on learning styles. In a general note, any fan of the late great comedian George Carlin would note that this use of the word style often indicates what he might refer to as something like BS. But other than method or technique or style, which I would argue is much more emphasized in student-centeredness, whereas in TC, there's more of an emphasis on substance, content, material, and texts. Not even just texts, but in the words of Philip Reif, to be people of the page. And so this is the really strong and simple case for why TC is in many ways preferable. It's the simple structure that one learns from someone who knows a lot about what they are teaching. Not a kind of a expert in the act of teaching itself. And I'll come back to that in a little bit more detail. But that's the that's the, the strength of TC in terms of the simplicity of why it's a good thing, that it emphasizes knowledge, not just knowledgeable teachers in a given subject, but the understanding that knowledgeable teachers produce knowledgeable students. And this also strikes at the heart of SC, where 
the goal, it seems, is no longer really to produce knowledgeable students, that there are other ends, aims, or a different telos. So just a very quick example here. I mean, imagine that, you know, uh, you're, you find yourself in a history class with a history teacher who knows about history, and you decide that it, it isn't relevant for you. Um, under normal conditions, you might be able simply to leave, not, not continue to, you know, take this particular course. But you would not demand that this history class with this history teacher who, you know, knows about history and history is the, the subject and various topics, it would not seem reasonable to suggest that this teacher set upon curing poverty instead. Of course, that would be ridiculous, and this is kind of a, I mean, this is a, a self-serving hypothetical, you know, it's fair, fair to admit that. But it drives this point home of, even if there is another topic that is more fashionable or in vogue, that it may seem reasonable to make such a claim that this topic should be made more relevant or responsive, terms I keep coming back to. But certainly, there's a risk of a lot that could be lost in the learning from, again, someone who knows what they're talking about and changing it into something else. Because there's a, a fair degree of certainty that in a history class with a history teacher who knows what they're talking about, you're going to learn a lot about history. But setting some other kind of political goal, uh, it's entirely possible that no actual progress will be made whatsoever in terms of something like, in this example, uh, curing poverty. And so you neither achieve the political end nor attain any new knowledge. Okay, so I want to start off with Hige, who wrote an admirable book called The Art of Teaching. And I want to just make some general comments from the book that sort of establish the general tenor of the work uh, that may not speak directly to TVSC. But I think help to understand his, his perception towards education. So for Hige, there are three great rewards in teaching. And I do believe that teaching is rewarding. And interestingly, he places leisure as the first. But also, the leisure of a teacher, I think he's referring to time, right? Weekends, evenings, summers. But also, he says that this is the one most often misused. This is perhaps another casualty, where in SC, I think increasingly there's an emphasis on a kind of obsessively devoted teacher who doesn't have leisure time because they're so wrapped up in their teaching practice. For example, I mean, there's no sense of any limiting principle on how reflective a teacher ought to be. You could be endlessly reflective as a teacher and it would probably just be seen as a, as a good thing. But much of, that, much of that leisure time, I think, is spent on n learning and knowing about the subject, 
and uh, even just having a, a broad, uh, broader understanding of the world to, to, to be a broad thinker. The second of the three great rewards of teaching is using the mind on valuable subjects. We're going to see this emphasis on subjects in Hige, and that's mainly why I, I think that he can be recruited into the TC camp. In a world where so many people's lives, uh, their work lives specifically, are at times, or even much of the time, spent on tasks that may seem, as he says, mind-numbing, tedious, or frivolous. Which is not to say that there isn't honor in, in any and all work, but that there is something, we might say, exciting about classroom teaching. and that the subjects that are taught, we have to believe, are valuable. And the third is making something. Pupils come to you with half-formed minds full of blank spaces and vague notions and oversimplifications. You take the living mind and mold it. That is, you make something. And because three is a magic number, for Hige, there are three essentials in teaching well. The first and most necessary of all, to know and really understand the subjects. Again, notice he says subjects, not students. To know and understand the subject that you teach or subjects that you teach, including the upper, higher regions of it. For instance, Elementary school teachers must know how their subjects live in high schools, while high school teachers must know how their subject lives in universities. Why? So the teacher can open door after door of learning into the future. Knowing your subject area means continually relearning it as well. Two, the second essential is you have to like the subjects you teach. You know, this is separated from really knowing them, right? Knowing your subject is one, and liking your subject is two, interestingly. We notice here that the first two essentials are about loving what you teach, and, at least not yet, who you teach. This may be a matter of some disagreement with any SC proponent, but nevertheless, stay with me. Quote, but if you do enjoy the subject, it will be easy to teach even when you are tired and delightful when you are feeling fresh. You will never be at a loss for a new illustration, for a topic of discussion, for an interesting point of view. Even if you do make a blunder, as every teacher does, if you forget a formula, you will not need to bluff your way out. You can admit that you have forgotten and even ask for the correct word without sacrificing the respect and attention of your class. For the young do not demand omniscience. They know it is unattainable. They do demand sincerity. So the teacher's relationship to the subject, the content material itself, even the curriculum in some cases, is a source of vitality for a teaching practice. 
and this isn't so focused on the student, the individual, um, in terms of their personality, individual psychology, identity, etc. And so this is certainly something that separates TC from SC insofar as it's not therapeutic, right? In a therapeutic setting, of course, the the client or the analysand is the sort of first and foremost. Note, Hige seems to suggest that a teacher can draw from the subject to engage students rather than engaging with students directly in order to draw their interest into the subject. And this is a really an important inversion in terms of these distinctions between TV, TC, and SC. Which is a different methodology, as stated, than engaging students in a directly personal way so that they will attend to the subject. This is sometimes deployed in the phrase that they, meaning students, they have to know that you care before they will care to know. Something like that. So again, this direct connection to a subject and an indirect connection to students and how this is inverted into a direct connection with students and only an indirect relation to the subject. Certainly it's a worth further consideration. The third essential of good teaching, third, is to like the pupils. If you do not actually like boys and girls or young men and young women, give up teaching. It is easy to like the young because they are young. They have no faults except the very ones which they are asking you to eradicate. Ignorance, shallowness, and inexperience. A teacher must not only like the young because they are young, he must enjoy their company in groups. There are many more pupils than teachers in the world. Unless he or she likes groups of young people, a teacher will not be able to teach them well. They, your students, will always be young and there will always be lots of them. So I think that's a very nice introduction. So moving a little bit deeper into Hike. Hike seems to think that even though it, at times it seems that everyone thinks that schools should teach students what, what they need to learn. And this almost sounds like an impossible thing to argue against, right? It's a sort of a well-fortified position. Schools should teach students what they need to learn. But we should also very seriously consider the alternative that schools need to teach what they're well equipped to teach right so putting the taking it out of the domain of schools and thinking of an individual teacher what should a a teacher be teaching young people today um it, it seems like an open and kind of a lively question so SC would most likely seek to answer this by, well, whatever the things that we can identify is what these, what the learner, what the child, what the student needs to learn, that that is what the teacher should just start teaching. But 
and it almost seems self-referential or um, you know it, it seems self-evident to someone that is only exposed to SC ideology but this other idea is that really it, the most important thing actually is that the teacher teaches well and that the teacher is teaching from a, a place of knowledge or even expertise that what is the teacher able to do what is the teacher good at and what does the teacher know about because as soon as a teacher steps too far beyond that or out of that in general the overall quality of education is going to suffer and so by trying too hard to put too much of a premium on whatever we suppose students need to learn we may actually in this indirect sense by not really thinking carefully enough end up compromising the learning that they can receive the other problem with this focus on students needs in terms of learning I mean the obvious problem is that we frankly have no idea what are the you know there's a lot of talk but I think it's quite superficial and hollow about you know 21st century skills right the skills that they're going to need to make them competitive and you know the world of tomorrow and the future job market but as we'll see a perennialist would say that these things are always the same actually that they're just you know well-educated well-read thoughtful intelligent that they're developing and cultivating their intelligence towards something like a life of the mind that they're engaged and thoughtful and these kinds of things even i think in stearns he talks about people who are brave and courageous and take on challenges etc that these kinds of things really don't change but the more specifically the problem with this kind of self-styled responsiveness is that it's frankly impossible because it becomes amorphous and reactive in this relevant and responsive style because if the needs of students are constantly changing or they're constantly being reinterpreted and there's almost a, a desperate attempt to try, to try to stay relevant and responsive then teachers have to constantly be changing whatever they're teaching which almost assures that they're never going to be teaching anything very well at all which essentially dooms students to constantly be in the presence of teachers who don't really know what they're teaching or what they're talking about in a sense it almost invites this you know whatever topics are dominating popular discourse even in popular culture that the the, the school just becomes an extension of that uh, neil postman indicates something similar that in a way school just becomes an extension of television i mean television is always meant to be you know directly connecting to an audience again that television whatever else you might say of it it is relevant and responsive right it's constantly being repackaged to meet the interests of people right now anyway i think well the bottom line here is that even though it sounds good and it not only sounds good it sounds 
It almost sounds too good to even try to argue against. Teachers need to be teaching what students need to learn, what students need to know. And uh, it almost seems heretical to argue against that in the uh, SC monoculture, the orthodoxy. The problem is that it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how good something sounds if it doesn't work. And there's almost a kind of ideological purity of regardless of how much it doesn't work, we're so invested in how we think it sounds. But largely, this is not about students at all. This is, in a way, arguably, much more in the service of the way that teachers want to think about themselves. Teachers don't really want to be relevant and responsive because they genuinely believe that this is the best thing for students. It's much more of how teachers wish to style themselves, that it serves the um, desired identity of teachers. That my classroom is relevant, my classroom is responsive, my classroom is, is like this. And it's, it almost at times seems as if that is a willing trade-off. Say, so, well, is your classroom working in terms of how, like, in terms of what people are learning at the end of a lesson, week, month, semester, year? I mean, how much have they really gained? And then again, the, there are dodges that, well, you know, they know, I think they know more about themselves. And certainly this is not just a problem specific to education that there are many, I think, many fields that are in crisis because they are perhaps more committed to what sounds good but doesn't work rather than, you know, any kind of harsh truth that, you know, this may not sound good or nice, but it works. And this also brings in the discussion or at least the consideration of the guild that Think of an apprentice. What should the apprentice learn or learn about? What the master knows, of course, in a master-apprentice relationship. The master should not be constantly changing whatever they've spent a working lifetime mastering that the the apprentice basically needs to be um, just trying to learn everything that the master knows from the master. And increasingly, we have teachers who are not experts or masters in any given subject, but uh, at least it's being sold to us that they are experts in methods and techniques or styles. And that there is this, I suppose, a hypothesis that what can be created now out of a, out of a potential teacher into making an actual teacher is a universal teacher, a teacher who can teach anything, regardless of how much they know or don't know, because of these supposedly advanced, supposedly ostensibly scientific methods, techniques, or styles. 
and it is folly. Education is not at a point where it's so advanced that it has become irrelevant what the teacher actually knows. And I think everyone understands this plainly enough. But again, the problem is that these downsides, these drawbacks are not explored. They're not articulated. They're not even considered because it because student-centered is good and anything that challenges or questions it is just heresy, right? So this is, again, speaks to the heart of the entire inquiry about the importance of a diversity of ideas, of real heterodoxy in pedagogy. So I want to turn directly to the text, to um, Gilbert Higay's Art of Teaching. And I already touched upon this um, but I want to just sort of reiterate that even just judging from the table of contents, there's the introduction, and then the first section is on the teacher. Certainly seems to indicate, at least at least superficially, uh, TC. Especially in terms of my that I'm inferring an order of importance here, not just because of this first section on the teacher, and I already talked about the the rewards at the outset and the qualities of a good teacher. And there are five that are given here. And I think that the order would almost have to be perfectly inverted from TC into SC. And remember that we're often thinking of SC, student-centered education, as the inversion, right? That whatever teacher-centered education thinks is good is bad or thinks is bad is good. That it's just, that it is deeply rooted in negation of what was, regardless of, you know, being selective of the aspects of TC that were good or bad. There's no sense of conserving what was good about this, this quasi-historical understanding of how teaching used to be. Anyway, so the first quality of a good teacher is knowing the subject, and the second is liking the subject. Subject, subject. And then the third and fourth goes from liking the pupils to knowing the pupils. So knowing the subject, liking the subject, liking the pupils third, and then fourth, knowing the pupils. And then there's a fifth, which is kind of an outlier, which is about knowing other things, which basically means having other intellectual interests or being a broad thinker. And this helps to make connections to other things, um, other topics, fields, inquiries, etc. You can see how obviously useful this would be. Uh, you, you know, if you're teaching English and you're trying to recommend or suggest a book for a student for an independent study, talking to the student about what they may be interested in, and you know, let's just say something like fishing <laughs> that you um, that that you have enough of a sense of what 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 books might might be interesting or relevant for someone who's interested in something that really is quite outside of literature. So, you know, The Old Man in the Sea or Moby Dick or other, you know, obvious possibilities. So if, if we, but if we set aside this fifth point of knowing other things, and we just think of the first four, uh, knowing and liking the subject, and then liking and knowing the pupils. If we, if that is a teacher-centered prioritization. If you just flip it or invert it, you may see, you may recognize the ordering of 
how a kind of a postmodern student-centered teacher might think that they would put first instead of fourth knowing the pupils you really have to know the kids in terms of their individual identity and you really have to like them or even love them you have to love kids love your students uh, almost like a parental kind of love okay and then third and fourth liking the subject or subjects you teach and and last knowing the subject and this a de-emphasis on knowledge okay so let me jump to what is for me the most important um, part the most important pages of this text that i think tells us a lot it is extremely revelatory and then i want to uh, jump back to a part of this text that i think speaks to and reinforces an important point from Simone Weil from the previous episode. So let me jump ahead here. And uh, Hige is articulating a problem of the of how a student progresses from you know the, the beginning early stages of learning learning something into um, into greater sophistication in how this how this journey of advancing in knowledge also changes the relationship to the teacher. It may seem somewhat strange. Um, I think Hige is trying to write to a general audience here. And when he's writing, he's often saying, you know, um, the pupil or the teacher, or it, that it could also be the, uh, the son and the father. I think this would also, could also just mean uh, daughter and mother, or just child and parent. I think he's just trying to emphasize that some that a lot of these challenges that they're perfectly relevant in parent-child relationships as well as in student-teacher relationships. He's mostly. I'm just going to stick to the way it is in the text. Uh, again, I believe this is a maybe it's 1955, but he will say he and father and uh, pupil and teacher and uh, with masculine pronouns, but I think it's best to just stick to the way it's written in the original text, and we can, you know, the, the, the listener can fill it in. Um, okay, so I think that in a way, in teacher-centeredness, it's obvious that a pupil or student, or even a child, that ver at the very beginning, at the outset of learning something, if there is an initial resistance or rebelliousness, that this is nothing but counterproductive, that it's something that is not to be encouraged, but is to be discouraged. Now, at the same time, it's well understood that eventually that this has to be uh, loosened and relaxed, especially as someone comes to learn a lot more and they become uh, conversant in any given topic or field. And then um, di a different kind of emphasis can take place. But I think that this is one of the really essential, or at least for, for Hige, if we can imagine how he might be a, a critic of SC, that this is one of the problems of, of, of student-centeredness, that there is a tendency to over-celebrate rebelliousness or um, what may seem to be critical thinking but is just mere criticizing 
And these are just manifestations of resistance, or at least reluctance. And that education wants to celebrate a rebellion against education itself. That, you know, if, well, if you don't want to learn anything that I'm talking about, then just go and, you know, teach yourself whatever you want to learn. Right? This is way the, the, a way of leaning into a kind of rebelliousness when, to an extent, it cannot really be tolerated or indulged. Um, but not as a manifestation of the teacher's power, but really specifically in terms of what is best for the student. And again, depending on the age, developmental stage of a student, there there are certainly many situations where uh, where the parent or where the teacher really does know best, however uncomfortable it may seem. Teachers today, I think, have a very uneasy relationship with their own power as teachers. And this is, I think that there is a reaction to this power that instead of really dealing with the difficult the difficulty of how can I manage the power that I have and to use it effectively and ultimately in the service of learning where I think too many teachers um, or at least not at the level of teachers but at the level of SC ideology is that instead of instead of struggling with this negotiation to just simply give away all of the power or at least to pretend to and just pretend I think that the classroom is some sort of purely democratic space. I've touched upon this in an earlier episode. As if the teacher was just one voting member, along with all the other students. When we know that it's obviously not the case. Like, students do not get a vote on who, you know, gets in trouble. <laughs> that the, the, the guidance and the direction of the teacher is indispensable. Okay, so um, Hige certainly is is very direct, actually. Um, but anyway, I hope it doesn't seem to uh, you know to disquiet or be uh, discomforting. All we can do at present is to try to understand what goes on in the mind of the rebellious pupil and the bad son. He is trying to be himself. He does not know what that is. Like all the young, he has hardly any idea of his own powers and weaknesses. His spiritual growth is even more mysterious to him than his physical development and far more erratic. He feels as though he were driving a car very fast without knowing which are the brakes, where the steering wheel is, and whether the road signs are telling the truth. He knows he must keep going, but he does not know where. He knows he must grow, but into what? Continuing. Now, if he has an unusually good and admirable father or mother, or a teacher who seems to have no weaknesses. He is led to believe that he must follow his father or his teacher. He must copy them in everything. He must try to become them. 
yet he feels that if he does so, he will have lost something. He will not be himself. And he also feels that he cannot become them because they are so much better. The boy of 18 cannot reproduce the calm wisdom and self-control of the man of 45. The hot-tempered youth, um, in this example, an emperor, can never be as poised as an elderly Stoic. Therefore, rather than be a weak and inferior copy, he decides to be a bold original. My father is king? Good. Rather than be an imitation kinglet, I shall be king of the rascals, monarch of the underworld. Some Christian theologians say that the first sin ever committed was the same action, when the creature rebelled against the Creator, when the Prince of Angels made himself the King of Devils, saying, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Okay, so what, what, what is the point um, that Hige is, is starting to get to here? Well, first of all, I think it's this conflict or this essential tension between the early stages in any kind of learning process or apprenticeship, as I alluded to, that at the beginning, it really, the, the best and most profitable course is for the student to emulate or to copy, or even, in a sense, to aspire to just to try to be able to do whatever it is or to be able to speak to whatever topic as intelligently as the teacher. That is sort of the, the ideal, to be able to do it, you know, let's say math problems, just as well or better than the teacher. That there's this, there's a kind of an implicit challenge to try to do it as well as I do. Or just to follow the way that I show you how to do it. Don't try to do it your own way yet, right? This, uh, you know, for lack of a better expression, is sort of a training wheels approach. Let me help to guide and steady uh, the voyage as much as possible and really stabilize it and confine yourself to these lines, so to speak. But there's a, but we also see that this can't go on forever. Perhaps I would say maybe only a small minority of students really want to just continue along in this really kind of purely selfless apprenticeship, um, you know, where they never have any desire to sort of assert themselves in their own their own difference, and they don't have these anxieties about losing themselves or about not achieving some sort of, you know, personal identity. But the, we get a sense of a ratio that, again, especially in the, in the early years in general, but also in the early stages of any new topic or field of inquiry, that at the very beginning it should be almost completely some sort of faithful and humble apprenticeship. And that accompanies, you know, there are certain habits and attitudes and behaviors that are appropriate. 
that become less appropriate over time. Uh, the more, again, the more conversant or the more capable the student becomes over time and, and through just the application of effort and energy and attention. So at the beginning, there's this sense that you have to just set yourself aside and don't really worry so much about, you know, don't try to start to inject or infuse your own style into something uh, before you know anything about it. But these, these later concerns about, you know, losing yourself um, and, uh, you know, these anxieties about, like, if all I'm doing is just trying to be a copy of someone else, then, you know, I think this is, people can recognize this. This is a, a familiar thing about that it, it's never really going to, to be really satisfying, I suppose. And so it is a real, a real concern. And we'll see that Hige says there are things that the teacher has to do along the stage at these probably at these later later learning stages in the process where it becomes more and more important gradually for teachers to encourage difference and also you know if students just feel like they're you know all they're ever going to be is just a you know an inferior copy of a of a great teacher that no um that you that that really high levels of excellence even beyond me as your teacher are certainly possible and that ends up being his solution um, just looking ahead so the problem perhaps is that sc is too focused on telling a student in the earliest stages of the process or even perhaps before it begins starting to emphasize being a bold original at the very beginning right this bold original this is um in his example of the uh, the king and the prince, right? Um, you know, you have this hot-tempered or hot-blooded young, you know, he says young emperor, let's just say prince. And uh, the father is this sort of like elderly, stoic, uh, with calm wisdom and self-control, and that there's a rebellion. Rather than trying to emulate all of these, you know, worthwhile things. It's like, how can I become, like, how can I start to obtain for myself these attributes, these admirable things, this calm wisdom, this self-control, um, this stoicism. And again, to apprentice the king in these respects and what might be called kingliness, I suppose. But we get this, there's another kind of reaction and it is just this, um, this rebellion, this rejection um, this attitude that I think Hige articulates beautifully. Rather than be a weak and inferior copy, he decides to be a bold original. My father is king good, but I'll just be king of the rascals, monarch of the underworld. Well, then he gets into the, the Satan um, analogy or illusion. But this idea of, well, you start, you you really should start actually as a copy and that there's no shame in it, right? That there's no original creative contribution that you can make at the very beginning of something. Almost never. 
I mean, except probably in the rarest of cases of the, you know, of the true prodigy, like someone like Mozart. Be actually, so again, this is the kind of thing that teachers would never want to say or would never want to think of them. They wouldn't want to identify with themselves in this way of saying, kids, for now, do what I do, copy me, just be an inferior copy for now. And then later, probably much later, can you be a bold original? There's the sense of wanting to jump to the end, wanting to get to the dessert, wanting to build in bold originality from the very beginning somehow. And I really think that this is also captured in critical thinking. That I think for TC, again, critical thinking is one of these sacred cows that it's just heretical to uh, dispute or to, to push back on. But that critical thinking requires a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding of something before you can think critically about it. This idea that there's this raw, pure, I'm thinking of uh, almost like there's this, this uh, plastic mind that is almost like these stem cells of, of pure and original creative thought and the young people can just apply their minds to anything and start to produce something of, of tremendous value. And while we have to value young people and, and value their uh, the, the potentials and capacities of their mind, we also have to train them in discipline. And not just discipline, again, again I think for SC, you've got whole generations of teachers who just think that discipline means punishment. Discipline also, obviously we know that it also has this specific, this university-centric word that you know, we, that philosophy is a discipline. That, that's the, the one that I studied, for example. And that it means not, it, that discipline in that sense means a narrowing of your thinking, right? A focus or a concentration on something particular. It is, in a sense, the opposite of just being completely open-minded, right? Like an undeclared major, is there, there's something certainly very open, whereas a discipline is some, somehow, well, it's much more narrow narrow in scope but that this narrowing also allows for a depth so I think for TC and I think for Hige there's a sense of do not rush into some boldly original individuality or identity even that some sort of Again, as much as student-centered teachers of today won't like it, this period of, of, of faithful, humble apprenticeship that is in service of, you know, really doing what the teacher wants you to do in the way the teacher wants you to do it, because it's, frankly, because it's been designed to expedite this, this early stage, this, this early part of the process, right, that actually to, in a sense, conform to these wishes is going to get you to the part where you get to start to exercise these differences in bold originality and what we would recognize as excellence, that it's going to get you there faster.
So uh, in earlier episodes, namely Bagley talks about this long period of dependency. And if there's this long period of dependency of in human nature, then, you know, and school exists to to try to make that period of dependency as productive as possible, that there's also an attendant long period of service. Again, again, some sense of, not just to a teacher in some direct sense, but to, you know, to schooling, to education, and to these subjects, and to be dedicated Okay, so continuing on in the text. In this conflict, again, I think it's a conflict between copy and original, to be in brief. In this conflict, as in all conflicts between father and son or teacher and pupil, more weight of responsibility rests on the father and the teacher. He knows more and can plan better, but it is very hard for them both. One method of minimizing the conflict is for him to allow his son or pupil to differ from him. He should encourage him to differ. He should suggest new paths along which the boy can move freely without treading in his father's footsteps. Even then, there will be a danger. The boy may be torn between the desire to be his father's image and the need to be something different. It is the father's duty to try to help the two parts of his son's personality to harmonize and grow together. Again, this is, I refer to it as, as an essential tension, but it's also an extremely productive tension, right? You start off, again, as a, as a humble apprentice, trying to be um, as much as possible to kind of perfectly emulate or copy and then eventually there's this other uh, impetus to want to, you know, strike out on one's old and, you know, to be a bold original and not just to do it the same old way and uh, to try to innovate and experiment. And it's, it's really the, the fruits of combining these two things and bringing them into a harmony or a balance at the appropriate stage at the right time. But simply like this idea that you can just start off like that you know everyone is a Mozart unto themselves in every respect um, that it doesn't lead to this that this tension doesn't exist right and, and a less productive uh, matrix takes its place that we want that we want we want the two parts okay even though there is a tension or a conflict here Right? We have to accept that, you know, we have to accept the reality of conflict in these, in these teaching relationships. And that navigating through it is the teacher's responsibility. And again, helping these two parts to, to harmonize and to grow together. But again, a student-centered emphasis on, you know, encouraging them to differ from the very beginning. Right. He, he, okay. Lesson one. Here's what we're learning about, and you know you can do it any way that you want. That it it really um, 
undermines itself. It's self-undermining or even self-defeating. Okay, continuing. Another method, which is even more difficult, is to diminish the distance between father and son and to make the boy understand that achievement is quite possible. Tell him the mistakes you made. Describe your early struggles and conflicts, not as titanic battles, which only a superman could have won, but as anxious skirmishes similar to his own. If you, if you beat him hollow in some area of competition, allow him to beat you in others and praise his wins. When he emerges successfully from some trial you have never faced, make much of it and show him how it has strengthened him. It is awful for a young man to feel his father or teacher has no human weaknesses. To show him yours will actually help him in conquering his own. So in more contemporary uh, language, um, what we're talking about here in education is that you want to normalize the difficulties and struggles that a student has, okay? That everyone struggles with this uh, in, in different ways at different times. I remember when I was studying this that, you know, I felt the same way that you felt before, right? Um, but, you know, also trying to, I mean, accepting the difficulty while also encouraging them to continue on through it. And I want to go back to this this phrase that achievement is quite possible. Insofar as, you know, going back to this, that, you know, uh, the, the student early on in the process, um, again, might just feel that they're never going to be as good as the teacher. Like, I'm never going to be able to do it. It's impossible. This idea that achievement is quite possible. That if you stick with this, you will become better than me. And it's it's meant to be uh, motivational or inspirational, but it's largely true that if you spend more time on this, and you're very young now, so if you spend more time on it than me, then you will be better. That there's nothing really inherently special or unique it isn't some you know most of these kinds of competencies they're not really just based on any pure talent so not just to normalize the struggles but also to humanize the teacher right that like i'm not perfect either i make mistakes right and um so everyone struggles including me right i'm just a human being i'm not some you know in, in some ways i suppose that teachers like we we try to we strive for excellence and we're we're trying to be perfect we all have a sense of an ideal teacher um but again these these two things working together this um to, to humanize yourself and also to normalize these the struggles along the, the path for the for the learner or the pupil as he says okay so i'm coming to the end here of, of my discussion of hige therefore 
the wise father and the good teacher will challenge their sons and pupils to equal them and help them where it is wise to differ and even to excel. This is sort of his own summary of himself. There's a challenge. Try to do it as good as me, even though I'm, you know, I'm much older and much more experienced. Try to do it as well as I'm able to do it now. And then to shift out of this admittedly kind of restrictive mode and then where it is wise to encourage the people to differ and to encourage the people to excel right to do it as well as me first and then to do it differently than me and then to do it better than me okay quote the best proof of the educational genius of the Jesuits is that many of their best pupils were not Jesuits. The best proof of Plato's genius as a teacher is that Aristotle worked with him for 20 years and then founded a mighty school of his own, based partly on his criticisms and refutations of Platonic doctrine. Platonic here meaning Plato's. The aim of good teaching is summed up in Aristotle's own remark about these differences. Quote, Though both truth and Plato are dear to me, it is right to prefer truth. So these are just historical illustrations of this, this progression. That Learn all that I know. Learn everything that you can learn from me. Um, which in many ways is going to be just you know, in the way that I, as the teacher, know them and understand them. And really, once you've almost reached this point where you've, um, I, I guess, you know, that this very gradual and incremental, but by the time that you're, that when you're approaching at least this, this final end point of, you know, learning all that you can from a teacher, then you really start, like you really come into your own and then you're able to, criticize and refute intelligently and respectfully and that it only enriches the relationship and it even stimulates the teacher and makes for a better teacher in the way that while it is true that great teachers make great students great students also make even better teachers as well it's a virtuous circle certainly that existed from socrates to plato to aristotle but if we make a kind of an idol of critical thinking, then we might delude ourselves into thinking that, you know, criticisms and refutations, you know, right away are somehow profitable. They are not. So that's why I want to focus on 20 years, right? This, this phrase that, you know, Aristotle was with Plato for 20 years, and then after 20 years, he started his own school, and um, that was based partly on criticisms and refutations. Not 20 seconds, nor 20 minutes, hours, days, weeks, not even 20 months, 20 years.
Now, it may not sort of have all been critical all right at the end. It's not just that after 20 years, then he was free to be able to be. Again, we imagine that this is a, a gradual progression that, you know, that one gains uh, this, these capacities to be able to be more critical or reflective. And that this is a part of a process of, um, again, learning all that you can and, and knowing as much as possible and really coming into one's own and being able, even being encouraged to differ and to excel in one's own ways. And sometimes going beyond or at least going in a different direction from, right? Diverging from, um, you know, a, a certain understanding or interpretation. But there's a sense that that is how long it takes. It's arbitrary in this case, but 20 years. Uh, which is, let's say, roughly how long uh, a, a person is educated today in our society. And I think it's, it's it's a good benchmark that this is how long it takes to really come into your own and to really learn as much as possible. I mean, try to learn as much from your teachers as, well, as Aristotle learned from Plato. It's going to be a tall order, to be sure. But... This is how long it takes to come into your own, to learn everything your teachers have, and to, at the end of it, really to be. Certainly, whatever we might call Aristotle, we can certainly call him a critical thinker. But we can also imagine a scenario where if he had been too, let's say, superficially critical in his thinking, that he never would have really achieved um, what he did in terms of his, his intellectual development. And so this is perhaps, I think that it speaks to the strength of teacher-centeredness again, and to some of these uh, ill-identified shortcomings in, in SC. And there is a sense that you have to it's a lengthy process of becoming yourself or even of becoming human something like this idea of uh, you know to forge a soul and that really along this along this process um, that this process is greatly aided by largely you know uncritical acceptance in being a faithful and humble apprentice and only at the right, in the right time, in, in the right way, to start to assert some sort of original individuality that, um, that, that really that higher form of critical thinking that doesn't just backslide into mere or rank criticism, right? Maybe with cr critical thinking, I don't think really has, you know, positive and negative phrasings. But you've got, let's say, criticism, uh, which which kind of indicates a kind of a, a pejorative sense. Um, it, it suggests like a judgmentality, whereas critique, really, uh, it it suggests, um, it connotes a kind of a thoughtfulness of of intellectualness, right? So not just you know criticizing everything all the time, but you know, 
achieving this higher expression that is something like critique. So thinking of critical thinking is as having um, not just as some purely and obviously good thing. And that too much of it too early can really be a tremendous setback, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Okay, so I want to jump back to the section uh, before wrapping up Piguet that I think speaks to something important in Simone Weil and, again, um, reinforces this TC critique of SC. Um, so, in the previous episode, there's a discussion of Simone Weil and talking about the importance of silence. Silence and grace. And uh, I, I was sort of reinterpreting this in terms of too much of an emphasis on too much activity and too much bustle that can, in a way, you might say dampen the ardor um, or somehow uh, cheapen the, uh, the, the really rich and intense moments of a, of a classroom or of a learning environment and making it too, uh, too, you know, like edutational, I think in terms of edutainment, right? That making it like a, like television is sort of an antiquated example already almost, but there's the sense that, um, you know, as a teacher, there's a sense of, you know, what, kids and parents and what administrators all want and sometimes it seems as if they want they want the course overall to be experienced in the same way that we experience a smartphone device right that it's kind of um, you know that it's easy and convenient and interactive and uh, intuitive and that in a on a smaller scale that lessons or units should be more like apps, right? That are, again, um, largely based on ease and how much easier they make everything, but in, in certainly in very specific ways. So you've got all these specific ways of, you know, things that are easy and fun and interactive and useful uh, apps. And then when you sort of put them all together, you have this, th this broader teaching uh, capacity of a, like a, a platform that houses all of these individual, you know, lesson apps onto the smartphone course. Okay, so coming back to the Hige text in a, a different a different moment, and this is uh, so he's he's got um, m most of what I'm reading from is from the chapter on great teachers and their pupils. And he gave the art of teaching. And one of the teachers he mentions here, of course, I already mentioned uh, the previous examples of the Jesuits and, of course, uh, Plato and Aristotle. And this is a section on Jesus. And it's got a very familiar example, uh, but I'm, I'll, I'll kind of read the, I'll read most of the paragraph anyway, uh, even though I'm sure this is well known amongst most people. Um, but again, I think it, it makes the point really well. And it's about the teaching methods of Jesus of Nazareth, um, which, again, I think is almost somewhat unexpected. Um, okay. His second method of teaching, again, the first was um, 
that uh, that Jesus had a that there's a kind of a, a rhythmic and echoing quality, like almost anesthetic. Anyway, the second method of teaching was allied to the first. It was to utter one single important piece of wisdom and then fall silent again. Such a remark struck his pupils as important because he had evidently thought over it for a long time or because it expressed his character very completely. They felt that no one else could possibly have said it, so they remembered it. We can see three or four typical situations in which these remarks were made. Sometimes they were answers to hard questions. His pupils would ask him to solve a problem that they had vainly tried to work out from their knowledge of his teaching, or outsiders who were sorely perplexed asked him about their difficulties, and he would reply. We hear of many Eastern sages who taught almost entirely by this method. Kung, whom we call Confucius, preferred answering an inquiry to making a positive statement. Sometimes again, the critics of Jesus tried to show him up by the competitive method of the Jewish scholars, asking him complex and tricky questions in the hope of proving that he did not understand the Jewish law or was breaking it. Many of his answers to these questions are recorded. For instance, the legal experts brought him a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery. Now, they said, Moses in the law ordered us to stone such women to death. So what do you say about her? At first he gave no answer. They pressed him. He answered, The man among you who is without sin is to throw the first stone at her. You notice I'm deliberately pausing here. And so the point has to be made that orators or anyone understanding oratory know the power of pause and silence. And I think TC knows it very well, too. That this is a way to punctuate and underline information um, to, to maximize the efficacy of the teaching practice. And I suspect that in SC, it would really be seen as a vice. Right, that silence in a classroom would be misinterpreted as a kind of oppression or cruelty. That, you know, either a classroom has, you know, is characterized by bustling activity or it's boring. But I... I it's very difficult, I think, to say in the abstract what is or isn't boring. Though people seem to feel that they're empowered to make these kinds of determinations and assertions. Okay, so that wraps up Hige. So I want to move into Hutchins in the second part, um, which I believe will be a shorter part. So let me just start off with some, again, uh, general comments 
um, about Hutchins and um, essentialism and perennialism. Hutchins. As with the essentialists, perennialists are educationally conservative in the requirement of a curriculum focused upon fundamental subject areas, but stress that the overall aim should be exposure to history's finest thinkers as models for discovery. The student should be taught such basic subjects as English, languages, history, mathematics, natural science, philosophy, and fine arts. Adler states the three R's, which always signified the formal disciplines, are the essence of liberal or general education. So clearly associated with TC, not SC. Secular perennialists agree with progressivists that memorization of vast amounts of factual information and a focus on secondhand information in textbooks and lectures does not develop rational thought. They advocate learning through the development of meaningful conceptual thinking and judgment by means of a directed reading list of the profound, aesthetic, and meaningful great books of the Western canon. These books, secular perennialists argue, are written by the world's finest thinkers and cumulatively comprise the, quote, great conversation, capital G, capital C, great conversation of humanity with regard to the central human questions. Their basic argument for the use of original works, abridged translations being acceptable as well, is that these are the products of genius. Hutchins remarks, great books are great teachers. They are showing us every day what ordinary people are capable of. These books come out of ignorant, inquiring humanity. They are usually the first announcements for success in learning. Most of them were written for and addressed to ordinary people. It is important to note that the great conversation is not static, which is the impression that one might obtain from some descriptions of perennialism. A confusion with religious perennialism, as opposed to secular perhaps, or even the term perennialism itself. The great conversation and the set of related great books changes as the representative thought of man changes or progresses. It is therefore representative of an evolution of thought, but is not based upon the whim or fancy of the latest cultural fads. Hutchins makes this point very clear. In the course of history, new books have been written that have won their place in the list. Books once thought entitled to belong to it have been superseded. And this process of change will continue as long as men can think and write. It is the task of every generation 
to reassess the tradition in which it lives, to discard what it cannot use, and to bring into context, with the distant and intermediate past, the most recent contributions to the great conversation. The West needs to recapture and re-emphasize and bring to bear upon its present problems the wisdom that lies in the works of its greatest thinkers and in the name of love. Okay, so I want to turn to the text here. And um, in the great conversation, uh, there's a chapter that is really my main focus here, that is the disappearance of liberal education. This is the chapter mainly focused on educational changes. And I think, um, I mean, I would argue that uh, what he is discussing in the disappearance of liberal education and the rise of some new different kind of education is precisely this, um, you know, approximately 100 years ago, this shift from TC to SC. And I want to spend uh, really a considerable amount of time talking just about the first the first very short passage, and then um, getting into the text a little bit more deeply. So, he writes that, in effect, the curriculum is extra, and the extra curriculum is the heart of the matter. Now, this is a critique of this new, um, you know, countervailing status quo, that we had a, a, a curriculum that was sort of well-established and long-standing. And then very recently in his time, and he was observing these changes, I believe this text is uh, 1952, that, that it, there's been this inversion, right? That everything has been, you know, uh, turned on its head, so to speak. That what, what we used to have as the curriculum, like, for example, reading great books, that that has become extracurricular insofar as, for example, the, the people who are, you know, still reading the great books of the, the canon, they're doing it outside of, outside of school, basically. And a lot of other extracurricular kinds of things um, are now moving in and replacing or taking the, the place of the curriculum. And so that there's been this inversion that these things have swapped and I think it's, I mean, it's obvious that this is a problem for Hutchins. And I think that it, it anticipates basically the entire problem with student-centered education. And again, uh, the problem with SC is also the need for this emphasis on TC, or at least this balance that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to suggest it, of working towards. So let me talk about how I... Um, in, in in a contemporary setting, how I interpret this extracurricular curricular inversion. So he's not talking when he says extracurricular. He's not talking about sports, right? He's talking about things that used to be achieved directly in schooling can now only be achieved indirectly, and things that in a previous period would have been achieved indirectly are now at least attempted. To be achieved directly. Okay, so I realize this is this may seem somewhat confusing. 
And there are a lot of other factors to this. So before continuing with the text, I want to try to, to try to situate all of this. So teacher-centeredness is diminished in this new student-centered, though it's not really called that yet, uh, approach. I mean, progressivism is, is probably what we're talking about in this context. But we have to remember, you know, some of the, uh, you know, practical considerations. And, uh, you know, Hutchins is aware of this and, and underlines this in, a, in an interesting way. But of course, there's this supply and demand problem. After the Industrial Revolution, there's the sense of universal education that everyone has to go to school and get educated. And it was basically impossible to accommodate, especially to have so many more people um, to be learning the same, the same content in the same way. And, you know, instead of some sort of honest admission that there's just no way that we can accommodate educating everyone yet, we don't, we simply don't have the infrastructure to be able to teach the same things in the same way. Now, why should we want to teach the same things in the same way? And largely, I think the main argument for this is that, well, why do all these people want to get educated? It's because they have this image of well-educated people, and they want to experience what those people experienced. But what ends up happening is that by this, this massive increase in how many people are being educated, it was almost necessary to completely change it. And Bagley talks about this, that, um, that, you know, education was something that was more specialized. And there were certain kinds of students with almost a, you know, a shared set of, um, kind of, a, that where there were common understandings that that they can't be relied upon anymore. So it's been necessary to lower standards if you're going to start educating absolutely everyone, right? Universal free education. And universal free education introduces the, um, you know, the argument about education as a right and not as a privilege. So, um, not only are we talking about high standards for students uh, in terms of their achievement, but also high standards in terms of teachers, that if you're going to have so many more students, you're obviously going to need many more teachers. And for them to be able to teach, um, you know, the, the canon, um, you know, the, the great conversation, they're going to need, you're going to need this massive and highly educated workforce that simply didn't exist. And instead of this being something that was accepted as a problem that we can work towards remedying over time, or simply having, you know, massive year lists, perhaps year, multi-year long waiting lists, um, or, or making education more competitive, as might have happened, you know, 100 years ago. It almost came to be justified and argued for on its own merit, right? Probably as a manifestation of cleverness. That, well, um, that this is actually going to be a an even better way. This is going to be, uh, sure, it's not the old way, but, um, well, since we can't do that anyway, let's at least make what is necessary more palatable and saying that this is going to be better in the end because it's more relevant. Now, if we can't get enough good teachers to teach all the really hard subjects, let's just say that those really hard subjects aren't relevant anymore. 
and just get a bunch of people and who can just teach whatever is relevant, whatever they know about just based on their quotidian experiences as citizens in this place. So this introduces this um, really harsh critique of, of, of TC against SC that this whole talk about relevancy and responsiveness is just a smokescreen. The truth is that it's very hard to maintain a lot, like to, to have great teachers to give great education to so many students. Not only so many students, but increasingly for such a long amount of time, right? Um, you know, from everyone completing up to high school to everyone completing high school to basically everyone going to university. Instead of just saying, well, in truth, we can't do this without lowering our standards and we're not going to lower our standards. I, I suppose some places, and it's been suggested, I think, in Stearns, that private schools alone are maintaining standards. And it's why that everyone wants their kid to go to private school. It turns out that these standards really matter to people. Okay. But anyway, the point here is that this is so often sold as being what is best for students, right? That, well, you know, the students need things to be, you know, relevant and, and kind of fun and interesting. But the other side of that is that this isn't about what students need at all. Students just need, just need a good education. This is all about what's easier for teachers. And we have to be, we do, we have to be, Whenever we hear that some new thing is going to be better for students, we have to ask, or at least try to separate, to what extent is this maybe just good for teachers, in the sense that it's better, in the sense that it's easier for teachers to do it this way. And if it's easier for teachers, and teachers are telling us that it's better, um, we, ha we have to be skeptical. Uh, I almost wish that we didn't have to be, but to an extent, you know, I think so many people are so skeptical of education because it has squandered public trust. Now, I mean, in this historical example, certainly this, we can say that this would have been probably necessary in the short term that, well, we're not going to be able to teach the classics to people just coming here from, to, to illiterate people just coming here from farms in this massive explosion, this, this new supply and demand problem at the turn of the century. But it didn't have to become a new status quo, that, you know, we in order to educate everyone, we have to lower the aims and expectations of what we consider an education, that that may have been that may have been necessary for a moment in time, but it didn't have to become institutionalized. Again, think of the... Bagley says that, you know, essential education has to be exact and exacting. But really, he's, he's talking about teachers as much as about students, right? That for a teacher to be exact and exacting of their students, again, thinking of he gay, they really have to know their stuff. And then again, thinking of Stearns here, 
if you can't be exact and exacting, again, certainly well, well before this talk of relevancy and responsiveness was in vogue, um, Stearns uses the example of geography set to music. Just do geography set to music. It's just, you know, it's, it's more fun. It's more easy. It's something that people can do. Like, it doesn't matter if it's just ridiculous. It's good because it's easy for teachers to do it. And since there's no real standard of geography set to music, anyone can succeed at it because it was just invented, right? Anyway, I already mentioned about what is extracurricular or curricular. Uh, again, not sports. But a lot of these... So what are the extracurricular things that have moved in um, to where the curriculum has actually been pushed out, right, in this inversion? Like what, are, what are the... You know, what are the particulars? And in one way, there's a lot of um, kind of pop psychology. Um, probably, you know, originally a lot of... We'll talk about self-esteem and multiculturalism, which was much more the flavor of the 90s uh, that I remember. And... Um, these are kind of examples of these postmodern therapeutic interdicts, right? Uh, new rules of what you, you can't do. Um, not just self-esteem, but also uh, anti-bullying. Anti-bullying has been a, a major emphasis for, for a very long time. Um, so, but there's been, you know, there's been a, a new intensity whereby, you know, multiculturalism and self-esteem, they're not politically charged in the sense that they are, you know, like, th there was never a sense when I was hearing about multiculturalism and self-esteem. I was born in 1985, so mostly my kind of, um, you know, uh, these kinds of emphases would have been in the, uh, in the 90s and then the, the 2000s. But this kind of like supercharged and politically charged uh, an activistic you know push for change agents um from multiculturalism and self-esteem um into something some kind of uh today we might say some sort of anti-racist social and emotional learning right that multiculturalism um has become something more you might say sort of militant um, and that self-esteem uh, has become much more expansive and uh, that it's expanded its scope both in terms of its intensity as well as like the years through which it's seen as important not only these two things um, again, these lines that I'm drawing from my experiences to contemporary times in this shift from multiculturalism to anti-racism and from self-esteem to social-emotional learning. Um, again, this, that all fits within a, a student-centered modality. Right? I'm, not, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, that one was teacher-centered and one was student-centered. These are all just you know, newer repackaging of the same uh, student-centered formerly extracurricular things that have become curricular. And the other thing, though, 
is this increased emphasis or obsession on identity. Now, that relates to, um, to, to, the, to social-emotional learning, SEL, or self-esteem, but it also increasingly relates to you know, multiculturalism, to anti-racism in terms of citizenship education. So it, it pertains both to what I would call character education, um, you know, just in terms of one, like how one conducts oneself, and also citizenship education in terms of one's larger standing within the, the body politic. So character edu- like these new forms, these new student-centered forms of character education and citizenship education. Again, the, formerly these were basically uh, extracurricular, that they were achieved indirectly or passively, that by, like, by studying the great books, that it certainly would, it would inform your character and your sense of citizenship. But it was never anything like, you know, you don't open to page one of a great book and it says, be a good citizen, you know, don't hate people, uh, don't be racist or sexist, like these kind of prescriptions against things that you're not supposed to do or to be. Um, much more likely that through the great books that you get kind of a, a vivid sense of a human ideal that you strive towards rather than, or, you know, don't bully, rather than a bunch of things that are just bad, right? It's bad to be a bully. It's bad to be racist. It's bad to be sexist. Okay. But what's missing is a kind of a positive vision of something to really strive for rather than just not being bad. There's something lacking in the inspiration that may not really excite students and just in the absence of terribleness. Okay, so not just, so I mentioned identity. I'll try to talk about identity more. Um, and an emphasis on identity as well as justice. So this brings us back into Hutchins now. So on the Hutchins, on the Wikipedia page, under where it talks about educational theory, um, there's a great quote. When young people are asked, what are you interested in? They answer that they are interested in justice. They want justice. If you say, well, what is justice? They haven't any idea. This, to me, is the, like, uh, perhaps the perfect encapsulation of this curricular, extracurricular inversion, right? Students should be, like, this is something that students should come across in their learning, right? What is justice, right? Um, you know, from the ancient Greeks onward. Um, you know, all the way up into much more contemporary, you know, political and even legal theory. And it's also important to note that this quote is from 1970, but it's, it's, it speaks to our present moment um, so perfectly. And this, this kind of historical, um, that, you know, the, the, this quote is from over 50 years ago itself, and a lot of these ideas, again, this from, from, long, from long ago, even further than that, um, 70, back 75 years were for Hutchins and Hike. And the problem, the other problem, is what we might call cryptomnesia, which is where teachers think that they're cutting edge right now. 
that, you know, I'm making my students interested in justice. My students say that they want justice. I'm doing something that no one else has ever done before. Even though, I mean, it just, it, it goes back, like, so far, it goes back to, well, even before the 70s, certainly. Um, the 60s, maybe, when it really started to root in universities. But there isn't any substantive knowledge behind it like is this like if there really is a deep and profound interest in justice where is the attendant philosophical curiosity of how this has been explored and understood that it's or is it just it just uh, a general interest in activistic type activities. Anyway, when I say cryptomnesia, what I what I mean is that is people who think something is new because they don't remember that it's old, or they don't they don't recognize it. More specifically, they don't recognize it as a memory that they had. So it seems just like a new thing. But it's a little bit. It's not as it's not as temporary as something like deja vu. It's all like look like this is look at this brand new great idea about you know students should care about justice, yeah. But like, if you knew what education was like fifty years ago, you would see that it's just the exact same. So it's a lack of a historical consciousness in teaching itself among teachers. So teachers are doing the exact same things that were in vogue a hundred and fifty years ago, and they think they're on the cutting edge. That you know, I think we should get rid of grades without any idea that that is just such an old idea. Uh, again, it's, uh, it may not seem to be a very helpful word, but um, there is a, a text that I'll get to later in the lit review um, to whom cryptomnesia is a very significant concept. Okay, so uh, coming back to this, all these extracurricular kinds of things today, right? Multicultural, anti-racism, self-esteem, social, emotional learning, identity, justice. Are these things bad? It, certainly this is the wrong kind of question. It's just, are they so much more valuable than the curriculum that it was a, a justifiable move to get rid of, for example, a, a liberal, a general liberal arts based, a liberal education that was based on, you know, great books and Again, the uh, culture in the Arnoldian sense. Just all the, the greatest works of the finest minds. Again, this citizen education for justice. And character education against hate. Uh, these things are not bad. Like, these things are good. We do want citizens who want justice. And, you know, we don't. Like, in terms of individual character... Um, you know, hatefulness is certainly undesirable. And yet, maybe that these emphases are, we could say that they're bad from a teacher-centered perspective in this sense. Only insofar as character and citizenship education can be better achieved through a solid liberal education, okay, even indirectly, that if you place the direct emphasis on the mind and on the intellect, or at least intelligence, and that you feed these minds great books in 
and, and cultivating that intelligence, that this will do a better job of achieving virtue in terms of character by a pursuit of the good for the citizen than abandoning that rich curriculum to pursue similar ends in new ways. So there's a sense that that through the canon and by virtue and the pursuit of the good, that these people, they become, you know, traditionally or, you know, classically well-educated, and they also get this character citizen education passively or indirectly, and in a way that's much more, you know, rich and meaningful. That it isn't just moving, for example, moving from one political cause to another, right? There's a, there's a, there's a particular source of injustice. There's a, a particular manifestation of hate without any understanding of the universals in a philosophical sense. The other and less familiar rationale to abandon the canon is scientism. Since the great past precedes modern science, and since science and its method are fetishized, if not worshipped, then it can all be discarded and discounted. Further, an attempt is made to make teaching itself scientific. Again, focus on method, aka technique or style, which only furthers the rationale to abandon the old for the new. And again, there's this curricular, extracurricular inversion, this focus on style over substance, right? That a knowledge curriculum is seen as antiquated, right? So to invert it, people who become knowledgeable do it outside of education, right? They do it in spite of education, not because of it, right? To become knowledgeable, well-educated, um, it isn't through formal education, through public K-12. And again, this introduces the another significant problem of education as ultimately failing in its, um, in its ability to be able to act as a kind of an equalizer. Strangely, and this is, again, this is a difficult point to make because I think it's so perfectly misunderstood that ed public education as an equalizer um, should mean that everyone, in a way, gets something like an elite education. Right? So by saying, well, we need to get rid of all these really difficult, challenging subjects because they're elite, that only certain people are able to do them. But when you water down, dilute, or otherwise dampen the ardor of education, then what happens is insofar as they're still seen as markers of, of, of a great education, then certain families and communities are able to compensate for their loss, right? Then when you take them out of the curriculum and make them extracurricular, it falls to individual families for the most part to fill in those gaps in the curriculum, and they do. So these kinds of, this impulse to kind of get rid of these elite things in education and to make it somehow more universal it doesn't promote really equal outcomes in the end at all it only makes things more unequal that 
the, for example, the job market still wants people that are knowledgeable. And if the if public education doesn't produce knowledgeable people, then like people will cer- certain people are going to be better positioned uh, to be able to see to the knowledge acquisition or to substitute of the lack of a knowledge curriculum. So, public education, um, through its ease, um, becomes less able to equalize the playing field in terms of upward social mobility and cultural capital. Okay, so this is a a familiar political trade-off about, you know, those who would trade liberty for equality deserve neither. And I think, perhaps even more specifically, in cases where people have been willing to give up their liberty for equality, um, that in a sense they end up getting neither. But, you know, more germane to this, and again, these terms also map onto TC and SC, more germane to this uh, conversation, trading in some sort of um, teacher-centered or traditional and more you know conservative or classical uh, education um, in terms of this, with its emphasis on the mind and intellect and intelligence. So trading in of this the, this teacher-centered mode that was primarily focused on intellect and mind and that passively or in, indirectly pursued things like you know justice and virtue and good in terms of character and citizenship and that's been traded in for the direct pursuit of what was formerly an extracurricular education for virtue and being against hate and being a, a good citizen for justice through activism the worst result is that if these things are not achieved right that if you can't make people virtuous and not hateful simply by telling them to be virtuous and telling them not to participate in particularly hateful things um, if you can't create a sense of citizenship that's predicated upon um, activism that that a citizenship that is more inclined to militate against the state rather than to organize in its defense. That if you don't achieve the, you know, the virtue and justice, um, or you know, anti-hate and, and activism, and they're very hard to measure, but if those things are not achieved, then not only have you lost the, the battle for character and citizenship, but you see that you've also already jettisoned the knowledge curriculum too. So the worst result of ending up with neither um, a kind of a good classic formal education nor these new extracurricular new direct aims, um, then then you've traded in everything and you've gotten nothing in return. It's probably the best way to put it. Okay. And as for this 
therapeutic emphasis on identity. Again, um, coming to some sort of understanding of knowing who you are, I think is a part of a liberal education uh, in a again in a teacher-centered, a great books type curriculum. But again, it's it's indirect and passive. But I still think that it's also still extremely effective. But again, to make it, to get rid of the curriculum that achieves it passively and indirectly, indirectly, and to replace that curriculum by taking the things that it used to do almost without trying, and then to try very hard to do those things and not to do them well. So making this emphasis on identity, making it active and direct instead of passive and indirect, and young people are more confused about who they are than ever. And so you get rid of you get rid of a really I, I would say proven knowledge curriculum that achieves so many amazing things passively or indirectly indirectly. And then you're struggling just to be able to do the things that it used to do on its own through rich learning experiences of important texts and and fine thinkers. Perhaps my favorite example of this phenomenon is a new, again, something ex formerly extracurricular like mindfulness. And thinking about Simone Weil and even this, um, the comment about, uh, in Hige's book about uh, the teachings of Jesus and his methods, and one of which was silence. And, you know, this silence in that example is something we might call, uh, in terms of slang, like a mic drop, where it, it, that it, a silence that indicates that nothing more needs to be said, as if the perfect thing was already said in the perfect way, and that there's nothing more to say. The only appropriate response is just to, to think about to, to, to think about in silence and also to respect the space of that utterance and not cluttering it with anything else, right? That there's something reverent about, again, just the, the awesome power of the right words said in the right way, in the right combination. But in terms of mindfulness, that this is something, again, that used to exist all on its own like that schools used to like that basically a a controlled and calm and peaceful environment it facilitates these mindful uh meditative relaxing kind of experiences right anything like a, an education that's more somehow pastoral and then schools decide that it's boring and they need everything to be active and engaging and interactive and then they have to then make a considerable effort to add something new called mindfulness back into it when you replace the old thing that did this indirectively and passively which really really means that it was so much more efficient Right, that it's achieving its 
main end, that it's producing what it's trying to produce, yet it also has all these amazing byproducts as well. And so, again, it's, it makes me think of cryptomnesia again, right? That, yeah, schools used to be very reflective and meditative and mindful. Um, they weren't just cruel and oppressive silences because people were afraid that if they made a sound, they were going to be, you know, assaulted. That's just, you know, part of this, the foundational myth, the way that SC constructs this straw or hollow man myth about TC. So in the same way, um, a great knowledge curriculum is so much more efficient because not only did the people become knowledgeable or what we would what what we would generally consider what we'd recognize as a well educated person, but it would also be achieving all of these things. Um, again, like the the ideas that would actually undergird a really robust sense of not not just multiculturalism but cosmopolitanism and self-esteem that is based on you know these deeper notions of the the value and dignity of humanity and also how how the, how these kinds of things were also hard fought victories and that your identity is always something personal but it's also something that's informed by great ideas and by great influences you know as well as justice and, and all the rest of it okay so as you know I think that this whole um, again so far I've read just this one or two lines from Hutchins I'm gonna have to go through this much more quickly um, but of course I think that this curriculum extracurriculum inversion is a brilliant point okay and yeah I've already talked about how something extracurricular like knowing who you are and some sort of therapeutic sense that maybe that was always somehow some extracurricular thing that you could go and talk to your teacher if you're really confused about something something personal um, but that it wouldn't be curricular right you would you know your your feelings your opinions your friends that there would be that that would yeah that somehow be separate from you know actual school curriculum speaking of efficiency though before moving back into the text there is another problem uh, another inefficiency problem with things like you know, identity, helping people know who they are, and, uh, you know, anti-racism, helping people not to be racist, um, you know, any of these examples, that we can imagine that it, in a best-case scenario, they're probably really only relevant to a minority of students, right? That, like, we have to imagine that there are students in this curriculum who may you know, they already know who they are, or they're not racist, um, or, um, you know, they're already very multicultural or, or, or whatever. Um, or they may already, you know, somehow possess some, you know, some, some very robust sense of 
justice. And so there's that's a different kind of inefficiency that that these that that this new extracurricular but into curricular type emphasis that it really isn't of considerable benefit to everybody in the way that we would assume that none of them are initiated into the life of the mind through the tradition of the West into um, you know the great conversation and even towards what Hutchins calls the civilization of the dialogue right that these are things that you know where they're all starting at the same point and that they're all basically beginners in and that we want to advance all of them through. Okay, so let me try to uh, I'll bring up the text here. Okay, so I think I've said everything I need to say about curriculum, uh, extra, extracurricular and curricular inversion. So, um, in, in a very clear and intuitive style, um, Hutchins starts to talk about the mind and the intellect. Okay, He talks about other social institutions that seem to address all these other different aspects of, of human need, you know, of, of the things that people need and the other institutions in society that can meet them. Um, and he, he writes, the unique function of the educational system would appear to have something to do with the mind. No other agency in the community sets itself up or is set up to train the mind. To the extent to which the educational system is diverted to other subjects, to that extent, the mind of the community is neglected. So when we take a curriculum that is based on fortifying or feeding the mind and it stops doing that, this is a problem because there's nothing else in society that is set up to do it, that it's unique to education. That's why it's so important that education not lose its mission of the mind. Okay, continuing. This is not to say that the educational system should not contribute to the physical, social, and moral developments of those committed to its charge. Again, there are even extracurricular things built into the school, particularly to the school day. And extracurricular also means at school, but just means not part of the what we might consider the core curriculum. But the method of its contribution apart from the facilities for extracurriculum activities that it provides, is through the mind. The educational system seeks to establish the rational foundations for good physical, moral, and social behavior. But the curriculum, you see, is providing the rational foundations for these things. And these things can be picked up elsewhere. All these other, other social institutions can pick up from the rational foundations that have been placed in people by education. And indeed, even a, probably in even a deeper sense, just a rational foundation as such. 
these rational foundations are the result of liberal education. So you educate people to become rational. And once you're dealing with rational people, anything and everything else is possible, right? But if you move the thing that produces rational, like, rational people, if you, if education no longer sees it as its mission to affix a rational foundation, then basically nothing else is really going to obtain in the same way. Education is supposed to have something to do with intelligence. It was because of this connection that it was always assumed that if people were to have political power, they would have to have education. They would have to have it if they were to use their power intelligently. So he's talking about, you know, political enfranchisement that now that, you know, if the, the power of the people, um, you know, a government of foreign by the people that if people now have this political power that they're you know, in, a, in a democratic sense voting, then we need to make sure that the people are using the people's power appropriately and that by being well-educated, sometimes you, know, you hear the phrase, a well-educated electorate is essential to, to, to uphold and maintain democracy so we don't lose it again, backsliding into history. Uh, this was the basis of the Western commitment to universal, free, compulsory education. I have suggested that the kind of education that will develop the requisite intelligence of... I have suggested that the kind of education that will develop the requisite intelligence for democratic citizenship is liberal education. Education through great books and the liberal arts a kind of education that has all but disappeared from the schools, colleges, and universities of the United States. Why did this education disappear? It was the education of the Founding Fathers. It held sway until 50 years ago. Now it is almost gone. I attribute this phenomenon to two factors. Internal decay and external confusion. I think, for my purposes, internal decay is the more relevant consideration in terms of something internal to education itself, uh, rather than to education's relationship with the, you know, uh, general public or the, the general uh, mind. Okay. So, um, obviously, this, this whole emphasis on mind and intellect as having been the curriculum and then moving, you know, moving the curriculum out to the margins and moving the margins into the curriculum, this also means moving the mind and the intellect. Um, and I, I usually think of knowledge, but anyway, then all these other things move in and they crowd out and they make less space for mind and intellect in education. And one of the fundamental reasons this is so problematic is there's nowhere else in society, there's no other institution that seems set up to be able to compensate for 
moving the mind and the intellect out of this particular institution of education and schooling. Whereas if we keep mind and intellect as this sort of true North Star and as something non-negotiable in education, then any of these other extracurricular things that they can be picked up, they can be compensated for in other parts and other aspects of the culture. So education needs to be doing what education is uniquely able to do. Yes, there are so many there are so many things that are important and we want you know, we want them all to be reflected, but it may be necessary um, you know, for people who are truly devoted or committed to certain extracurricular sort of ideas to establish and found their own institutions to do these things, not because we cannot lose sight of the opportunity cost, okay? That, oh, all these other new things, th that needs to be taught in school. But what about this cultivation of mind and intellect and this, again, this rational foundation, because anything that takes us away from that can delay that or, or unsteady that. So whatever else you think is important, do not allow it to be put into schools without a really serious, careful consideration of the opportunity cost. That this means that we're going to be, um, you know, less singularly focused on mind, intellect, knowledge, and the rational foundation. For, for character and for citizenship and for everything. Is there no other way for, again, uh, coming back to these examples like, you know, uh, social emotional learning, identity, justice, anti-racism, is there nowhere else in society where these things can be picked up? And, I mean, it almost seems strange to hear, hear myself saying it aloud. These things that are extremely popular everywhere outside of school um, now I mean the, the proponents might say they need to be reinforced in schools but again if we move these things out of schools again mind intellect knowledge rational foundations and there's nothing else that can pick it up then we're gonna completely lose them so if at all possible again we have to very seriously consider the opportunity costs and we also have to we also have to be careful as well as you know as just stated earlier are these new extracurricular now made curricular topics are these really what is best for our students or are they just so much easier to teach for teachers or more gratifying for teachers or, or somehow they appeal to the personality type that is drawn to teaching in this current, you know, historical moment. Okay, so we get into a lot of these really um, familiar uh, reasons for like that Hutchins goes through as to well, I mean, he's trying to answer his question about why did this education disappear, and we see it's a lot of really of the same familiar things that we've seen um, in a lot of other texts that well just going through a list here that I'll go through the text it's out of date 
It's not scientific. Uh, the great books are dead, arid, archaic, and irrelevant. Right? This word of relevancy. It's just one of these touched on words in education. Okay, so let me just try to move through the text fairly quickly here. I realize I'm over two hours now. The insights of these writers were at once out of date, for they could, in the nature of the case, represent little but prejudice or guesswork which it would be the object of the scientific method to sweep out of the way of progress. So because all these great old works come before science and modern science and the scientific method, um, then we have to just sweep them out of the way. That now we've got this new, better thing, a new, better way to know things. Um, and we need to just let science be our, our sole guide, so to speak. Okay, let me jump ahead a little bit. Great books in the liberal arts were identified in the public mind with dead languages, arid routines, and an archaic pre-scientific past. The march of progress could be speeded by getting rid of them, the public thought, and using scientific method and specialization for the double purpose of promoting technological advance and curing the social maladjustments that industrialization brought with it. Coming down a few paragraphs. Do science, technology, industrialization, and specialization render the great conversation irrelevant? Hutchins' answer would obviously be no, of course. Um, partly because of, again, all of the new challenges that all of these innovations bring, and that we can find this kind of constant sense, this constant source um, of reassurance, strength, and inspiration. Again, the whole rational foundation for our, all of our thinking that there's something universally applicable about the, a liberal arts education. Um, anyway, his, uh, his comments on technology here uh, are apropos. These technological advances are frightening rather than reassuring and disruptive rather than unifying. So how, like, for example, questions like, how do we deal with, um, you know, frightening advances and uh, disruptions that that undermine our unity and advances in communication that somehow seem paradoxically to make communication more difficult than ever before? Like there's there there is no scientific way it seems to answer these kinds of questions. Right, that we still need this 
again, the rational foundation, the mind and the intellect. And we need as much of it as possible. So he focuses on communication and the relationship that communication shares with community. So what we need is for, for humans to communicate. This in turn depends on a common language, a common stock of ideas, and common human standards. These the great conversation affords. Reading these books should make a man feel himself a member of the species and tradition that these books come from. He should recognize the ties that bind him to his fellow members of the species and tradition. He should be able to communicate in a real sense with other men. So this common stock of language and ideas and standards, um, these are the ties that bind, and it's not only just based on to the other people in the present community, but also to this this more abstract sense that through these texts we can communicate with the greatest minds ever, um, even no longer living, and that there is a kind of an extended intellectual community that is made possible through this kind of communication. But this is also an extremely difficult thing to make extracurricular for most people, right? To be able to learn how to, um, I mean, not just to be conversant in someone like Shakespeare, but to kind of converse with in the sense of interrogating the ideas, assumptions, and, and all the rest. But it's even, even more than just um, community and communication. He says... Imagine the younger generation studying great books and learning the liberal arts. Imagine an adult population continuing to turn to the same sources of strength, inspiration, and communication. We could talk to one another then. We could talk to one another then. This problem of not being able to talk to one another is not one that modern science and all of its techniques is able to help us with at all. So this idea that this old tradition, that it's completely irrelevant because it's not scientific, is so obviously wrong because it solves completely different sets of problems than science does. And science, without a rational foundation... Um, without communication, without community, becomes inefficacious. Okay. So, coming to the the last actual page of text that I want to discuss from Hutchins. And here he's talking about how Again, this, this teacher-centered idea, um, as I'm identifying it, that the best education for everyone is the best education for anyone. right? Whatever we think of the best education for the best and brightest person, 
that should also be our guide to the best education for anyone at all. I think for Essie, this would just seem like a complete fantasy. But there's this idea of having some sort of sense of a human ideal that everyone has to move themselves towards and that education exists to help them in that process of moving towards it. But uh, also Hutchins is going to tie this to some political um, political or citizenship consideration. Okay. So wrapping up, Hutchins. We cannot, we cannot admit that ordinary people cannot have a good education because we cannot agree that democracy must involve a degradation of the human ideal. Anything less than the effort to help everybody get the best education necessarily implies that some cannot achieve in their own measure our human ideal. So he's saying that everyone can achieve the human ideal. Of course, not everyone does. But there's this sense of having this as a sublime aim. And we're, we cannot decide for, even especially for some young person, no, they're never going to achieve the human ideal. That's what he's fighting against here, as he sees it. We cannot concede that the conquest of nature, the conquest of drudgery, and the conquest of political power must lead in combination to triviality in education, and hence in all other occupations of life. The aim of education is wisdom, and each must have the chance to become as wise as he can. The confusing point here about the conquests of nature, drudgery, political power. So let me just speak to that briefly. I think he's talking about really these stages of uh, human civilizational development, right? That we had to struggle with and eventually to overcome nature originally, right? In the state of nature where we were, you know, predator and prey. And then moving into the next stage of what he calls drudgery, where it's basically uh, where our, our actual survival is much more assured, but life is characterized by toil or drudgery. That most people, all they do is work all the time and very often just for the benefit of someone else. And then third is the conquest of political power. Um, whereby, you know, instead of just one person having all the power and everyone else, um, you know, being at their mercy, that there's the sense that um, in a, amongst a group, the decision-making power is dispersed, that everyone has a kind of a, a voting say, that we aren't just, you know, dominated by one or by a small number of individuals. And so he's saying we've gone through all of that and now that we're at basically the kind of the, the best or highest point that if we don't really respect education and if we um, if we dare to treat it 
as some kind of trivial thing, then we had better appreciate the possible consequences that we could backslide out of political power. We could backslide back into drudgery. We could even backslide all the way back to uh, to try to, to, to re-embark upon the reconquest of nature itself, which is just basically just a constant struggle merely to survive. And then to go back through the stages again, where it's not so much a struggle to survive, but but existence itself is still nevertheless characterized by daily struggle. Okay, so wrapping up here. I think there's just one or two closing remarks that I wanted to make. And actually... Well, there's one illustration about this idea of uh, of a common humanity or community through communication in terms of ideas. And um, I mentioned uh, Plato and Aristotle earlier, but certainly this common thread of ideas that also connects past and present. Um, for example, this line, um, it's understanding something like uh, justice in a line that we can draw all the way from Socrates to someone like MLK. But also in terms of the ideas that are animated by it, and also the importance that when you have, like, a good education also has to be characterized by points and counterpoints. This idea, for example, of judging by way of content of character. Uh, rather than by any other more superficial means. And ultimately to judge everything by means of ideas and evidence. I mean, this is the rational foundation that uh, Hutchins uh, touches upon. And again, I want to reiterate this importance of striving to an ideal, right? Towards, a, for example, a perfection of mind, however impossible, through the exercise of our natural intelligence. But there are certain things in certain ways in certain respects that we can, you know, become perfect in or learn to do perfectly, right? And that might be a small amount of things, but things that you start to, that you study and then you master and then you can start to feel a kind of expertise in and over. So the last point I want to make deals partly with Descartes. And the way that I remember this being formulated at the very outset of Discourse on Method is that reason is the most fairly distributed resource um, amongst all people. And I, uh, just based on that recollection, I looked it up, and the most common English translation is that good sense is, of all things among men, the most equally distributed. And I think this is a, a great starting point a great like presupposition and that in terms of natural intelligence that we all already have an equal distribution of the most important thing and so let us proceed from that 
and on that basis. Now, in a more uh, religious sense, you could say that well, we all have a rational soul, right? Um, that we, or even just that we are all already equal in that, uh, in that theological as well as philosophical sense. Um, that we're all equal in the eyes of a creator, for example. And, and thus, we're all equal in the way that matters most. Whereas, you know, instead of focusing on this initial equality that we have, whether it be reason or good sense, or in the rationality, obsessing over difference may, may lead us nowhere. And, again, uh, a, a positive vision of a, of a human ideal to strive for um, as implicit in a, perhaps in a great book's curriculum or, or just in, the, in any pursuit of a great conversation in a teacher-centered, essential or perennial um, educational system, that that just does so much more than just basically a checklist posed negatively of what not to do or not to be don't be racist don't be sexist don't be exclusive um things like this interdicts kind of what i, I think can be called postmodern interdicts so a vision of education predicated just on not being bad especially if it's aimed at young people most of whom we should not judge as being bad thus in a sense, in a strange way, um, despite these proclamations of relevancy, that this these kind of repetitive messages to young people about not being bad in these kind of frankly obviously bad ways, that you know when we look at young people, we may not really recognize these as as problems even as great as the problem just of their uneducatedness that that might be the more likely con conclusion for people who know lots of young people is that, you know, how, how well educated are they? Like, I don't see these young people as being these, you know, hateful or evil people who need to be, and even if they are <laughs> hateful, does telling them not to be hateful do anything to, towards that end? And, you know, if there is a problem with young people, it's probably that they're ignorant because they're uneducated. And trying to educate them, again, just by telling them not to be bad in these bad, don't be racist, don't be sexist, that it doesn't do anything. Really, if, if we really want them to be, you know, better versions of themselves in these ways and in all other ways, that that their shortcomings may be explained by being uninitiated into this great conversation that can benefit them so much in so many ways beyond just, again, I mean, struggling to read, you know, long, difficult books, which is strangely rewarding in its own way, but again, has all these other benefits, right? I also describe them as byproducts and how efficient that is when you're not only learning what you're learning, but you're learning all of these these other lessons too that are implicit, they're built in, or baked in. So 
another quote that this made me think of is that I am comforted at least in my certainty that he is doing his best to reach for all of it. Now, for, I mean, that you could learn, uh, or if you've, you know, got a, a, an infant young child, I've got a, a nephew recently born, my eldest brother. And, you know, there's no reason that he, his name happens to be Dylan. There's no reason that Dylan couldn't learn Greek or Latin and study the classics and also be trained for highly specialized work. Now, that will require, um, you know, a lot of organization and a lot of work by his teachers and also, you know, a lot of work by, by he himself. Now, producing classicists doesn't have to be, you know, that that's not the object of a classical education per se. But again, we remind ourselves that the best education for anyone is the best education for all. And that this involves reaching for all of it, striving towards an educated ideal, to be cultured, to be learned, to be very well read, and also to be, you know, uh, extremely useful to your fellow man in whatever, uh, whatever kind of work that you may do. And even to be you know, of good character and to be a good citizen. And I'm reminded again of this, uh, the time spent um, of uh, Aristotle with Plato in 20 years. That if you give your child to the state for public education for 20 years, especially, well, you know, during peacetime, and you're paying um, a considerable amount in taxation, you should demand in return a spectacularly well-educated person. Anything less than that has to be unacceptable. Everything from Homer to HVAC is well within the grasp of someone who is not only well-educated, but also well-trained. Again, in terms of all these other, in terms of the, the real curriculum, and, you know, which is, which is, it's true, rooted in the tradition of the West. And I actually think that people tend to think of the West as being very white, and I really don't think it is. Um, you know, perhaps the greatest teachers being, arguably, Socrates and Jesus and um, you know, people that, in a historical way, wouldn't really make much sense for them to be what we'd call white. But anyway, the tradition of the West actually, I actually think that it's really only incidental, it, that it just happens to be the best source, like, in, in the, or the most convenient collection of texts that facilitates the great conversation. Partly because of the way that it's constantly been refined in the way that Hutchins describes, right? That, you know, um, that it's perennial, but it's also evolving, and that books are dropped and new books are added. Um, for example, I mean, Nietzsche would certainly be fairly prominent um, in, in, the, in the tradition of the West, in the canon. Um, but I think even, probably even... 
maybe 150 years ago, maybe even 125 years ago, uh, would not have been. He's kind of one of these um, unforgotten, then re-remembered, important thinkers. But anyway, if there was some other tradition of, of ideas and literature that better facilitated what is meant by the great conversation, I don't think that there would be too much of a sentimentality whereby we would have to insist upon the tr tradition of the West. The tradition of the West is only that which seems, at present, to most reliably get us into the great conversation. And even the great conversation is itself only seen as, you know, the best step towards, again, what Hutchins calls the civilization of the dialogue. And I don't think it's a technical term with a particular definition, but I think it has to be left open to whatever you think it may mean. Um, if the great conversation isn't grandiose enough, or if it doesn't seem to have a, a practical end, then I think that is the practical end. And at least for now, it's up to the, the individual to decide what is meant by a civilization of the dialogue. Okay, well, I had better wrap it up here. Um, thank you very much for listening. It is appreciated. And... Good evening.